Mitchell. Welcome Patrick. back. How are you? Excellent. How are you doing? Um, so we've had we've had a nice little technical difficulty start here today. So uh, who knows how long we'll go? But um, we do have we do have one question that I want to get in, and it is not we're not going to have a lot of time to be beneficial for this question. But uh, because by the time this comes out, the old holidays are going to be close to over. But I have a question that says, Patrick, you frequently talk about this time of the year being the most stressful for people. I think part of that is gift giving. Do you guys have any historical gifts you've received that might be helpful for us this year? I do. Do you want to answer first or me? <laughs> I'll answer first, sure. But right, go ahead. Mine won't be helpful at all. all right. I only really remember one gift that I ever got, and it was. Uh, I was very young and it was called Mr. Game Show. And it was this like animatronic game show host that lets you play like a game show board game and uh, pick out anything you want at Toys R Us. And like, that's going to be yours. And it happened and I got Mr. Game Show. That's amazing, right? That's childhood <laughs> memories. It's good stuff. I don't know if that's going to be helpful for anyone, but if you want to find a retro guest, that's my recommendation. I'm going to go contemporary and, uh, and relevant uh, to who I'm talking to right now. And that's you, Patrick. So a while back, you sent me a box. You know, it wasn't around the holidays probably, but it was a gift. And, and in that box was a bunch of stuff from Sacred Plant Co. And one of those gifts is keeping me warm right now because my <laughs> new, my new podcast, my new recording area here is, uh, in a backyard shed in my, my backyard shed and it's 32 degrees out right now. So right now I am, uh, I've got this awesome big mug and I've got the wild chaga chunks from sacred plant company. <laughs> and so what I was thinking about, I was thinking about this today as I was brewing this up. Um, you'd mentioned before where you source, uh, your chaga from and yeah. it's, uh, it's Siberian, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what's crazy about that is that you don't really think about this much, but but a lot of Siberia is is coastal, and so you have like this interesting interface where you have a bunch of birch trees fairly close to uh, the Pacific, and you've got Siberian tigers there, and so <laughs> what? So like, sure, you could go ahead and get your chaga from Minnesota or Canada, or upstate New York, or Alaska, or you could get it from somewhere where there's freaking Siberian tigers. So, <laughs> um, and you're, you know, get it from Sacred Plant Co. Because that way you're supporting uh, both Patrick and the people that you're directly getting your stuff from. And to send them some US dollars uh, can be a heck of a good thing for them. So, and there's nothing there's nothing more magical than than hooking down chaga that you know was harvested from trees that maybe a Siberian tiger was like rubbing on or something at some point, just walking past. How cool is that? That is it's pretty interesting. So I'm forgetting their name, but it's a couple who uh, who lives in Siberia. And it's in, like as you're saying that, I'm thinking, man, 
the risk involved, and I know it's not a huge risk, but the, if you run into a tiger, your survival yeah. chances are pretty small. <laughs> yeah. Depends on when the last time they ate was, right? But I mean, it's a, yeah, <laughs> this is, uh, whew, yeah, this is, it's a fascinating thing. And it is, it's, it's truly magical. And it's, this is the perfect time of the year to get Siberian chaga too, because uh, of the connection between Siberia and Siberian shamanism and Santa, right? And how there's some interesting yeah. connections there with um, that classic fairy tale mushroom that has a red cap and the white dots, the Amanita muscaria, which was, you know, traditionally, uh, you know, shim uh, shamanically used uh, by these Siberian shamans. And they lived in the birch forest. So the people who are, are doing this are in, you know, in proximity. So they have Chaga there, they have the Amanita muscaria. And um, so if you want to learn more folks about the strange connection between Santa and mushrooms and shamanism, you can, you can do that. So that essentially though, um, the, the shaman would dress up to look like, uh, to embody the appearance of the mushroom. So he would dress up in red and white garb and uh, there's stories that the shamans, I mean, this was like well-documented by um, Russian anthropologists. Uh, I don't know when, eight, like mid 1800s, but they would, they would get into this inebriated state. And at some point during this, uh, some of them would climb up on top of their yurts or whatever the structure is. And the, the structure would, has like a central pole and also a, opening there to let smoke out from the fire that's keeping you warm inside and the shaman would climb down this pole into uh <laughs> into this tent yurt whatever so just like going down the chimney there are all these like mm. interesting little kind of uh cosmic giggles there and uh, and strange parallels so anyways um yeah the, it's like the more you the more you uh know about this stuff and the more you put into it the more you're going to get out of it because here i am keeping warm thinking about keeping warm with this chaga tea thinking about how heck yeah some people risked life and limb and death by tiger <laughs> <laughs> to get this and it makes it that much more delicious and healthy yeah yeah that that is something i've never thought about I, i'm appreciating the heck out of that the amanita mascara that is not a psilocybin mushroom. Is that true? 100%. Yeah. You don't want to, you don't really, people that experiment with that, they generally only try it once. It seems like, mm -hmm. um, I think it was, oh, I can't remember. It was Tom Robbins talked about how like, uh, psilocybin will something like it weaves you into the, like the, the tapestry or the web of the universe, like a, a silver needle or something like it's a sliver in whereas amanita muscaria is like a wooden stake and a sledgehammer driving you in so there's something like very very crude about it apparently um i've, I've never tried that but it's uh and i have no desire to reading reading the trip reports is plenty enough to to have an appreciation <laughs> you read you read the trip reports you say that's fascinating glad i didn't do that um, but, but yeah, it is, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a reluctant sort of, uh, person when it comes to, uh, psychedelics, 
and all of that. Um, I don't know. I'm middle-aged, far too neurotic at this point, but it's, uh, it's always, um, sometimes I feel like an armchair quarterback when it comes to psychedelics, where it's like, a, it's very interesting. And I've ha had some profound experiences, um, but it's something I can't, or I, I choose not to revisit very often. Um, but it seems to be stuck somehow connected to my life uh, because years ago I discovered a new species of psilocybin yeah. mushroom uh, in Arizona. And, and that was, that was a bizarre thing. So, um, so I think it's interesting to like, hold especially on, for on. people. Yeah. Joel, we got to take there? a moment. Yeah. You we got to take there? a moment to appreciate the fact that you discovered a species of mushroom. Like just, you discovered a brand new species. That's a, that's, that's like, right. Pretty freaking amazing. Of the, of the things that have happened on the planet, that's probably one of the things that the fewest people have done. I guess so. There's there's like a couple hundred species of uh, of psilocybin mushrooms out there. Maybe you know a few new ones are discovered every year. Uh, and and the kind that I dis that I discovered um, ones that will grow in an undisturbed natural forested habitat. Those are really some of the rarest types that you can find. Those are discovered um, according. I, I remember talking to Paul Stamets about this years ago, and he said uh, something like that is found maybe once a decade by the community. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's and, and it's like I don't know. We we'll, we can get into all that stuff. I think we've been focusing so much on the invisible path well on so many different things but i think we've been going into a bit of like a doom spiral and so it seems like <laughs> although it's necessary right there's some necessity there but it's like well let's just let's just turn it 180 degrees in a different direction and instead of focusing on you know how we're going to make it through let's focus on well let's focus on different ways to make it through but also um, some internal spaces and places that, um, I guess, consensus reality and the world at large really doesn't acknowledge and doesn't create space for, um, like, uh, like it used to, I suppose, in, in when we were in more of a, a tribal type of setting, right? So once we moved to agriculture, um, that was all out the window and then it was sort of rediscovered um you know after the industrial revolution in um you know late 1800s and then into the early and mid 1900s is when all of this started coming back um, and then certainly you had the, the turmoil of uh the 60s and, and that particular counterculture revolution um, but i think even for people that I mean, what I think is interesting about this space is that you, like in a modern world, it is something that generally maybe people have contact with it in, in college and, and then it will be written off after that. Like, well, yes, I tried this substance. Some strange things happened. That was a long time ago. And, you know, whatever. It has no relevance anymore. Um, and, 
and yet it is I, I really like what uh what terence mckenna says he says that it it is a true secret because it's the kind of thing that you can tell to people and they just frankly won't believe you and they they really don't want to hear about it right i mean if you want to be a raving holy man lunatic who has like like and who has like these incredible moments of like uh serendipity and maybe even seeing into the future to some degree well you can do that you can live that kind of life where synchronicities are are like popping into your life at almost an alarming rate and but the price for that um is your old identity like you can really go into that deep if you wanted to uh it's it's waiting there for anyone who wants it um but it's sort of a terrifying space uh at least to the to the ego and your identity right and so that's why mm -hmm. i say uh, i'm a reluctant psychonaut i'm i'm an armchair quarterback in a way but somehow uh early early childhood experiences drew me to it and eventually took me to that point up on the mountain in the aspens where i'm staring down at this you know little yellow mushroom that i that i know i've never seen before but i know exactly what genus it's in mm. and and know what that organism contains um and so it's it's a strange thing because i certainly didn't ask for that in a way maybe i did but um we can i don't know we'll cover that later i suppose um what so you what said, are, you said <laughs> early childhood experiences yeah like drew you what what were those so so I mean, I grew up in in Michigan. Um, had a thoroughly Midwest upbringing, uh, and had a typical sort of uh, mycophobic upbringing. Right. So the only mushrooms that I was aware of were, um, you know, through whatever, through like the folklore, or not even that, but just through what you hear from your parents and other people, are. The ones that grow out in the forest, which will all kill you, and then the ones on your pizza, which are you know they're okay. That's about it, right? Yeah. Um, and and so so that was it. And then uh, my older brother uh, went off to college um, and went out west and came back. I remember he came back with these uh, stories of magical mushrooms and. And that was a strange thing to me. And the only time I'd actually before that, the only time I'd heard about it was in like a middle school uh, dare class, right? Like, and so the teacher said, they're, you know, they're going over the range of all of the different dread drugs and compounds that will surely ruin your life uh, because of the, you know, 80s hysteria um, over the, the drug epidemic or whatever. So so then uh, she mentions to the class and it's in our little book that we have with all this you know awesome propaganda there are these mushrooms and people take them and they hallucinate and they grow on cow poop and so why would you ever want to eat something that grows on cow poop and and then to hear that to hear about this from well, from my big brother right he's someone i look up to or you know to some degree so 
that's that was an interesting shift um and then and then the th those were just like these these hints of something and then um my family moved from michigan out uh to washington state right to outside of seattle and that was when i was in high school and out there um it was just part of the culture of the high school kids they all knew not that all of them did it but they all knew that if you looked in the forest in the right place or if you looked in neighborhoods in the right places well you could find these little brown mushrooms uh and and they would you know they were they were psychedelic right and for gen x at that time gen x really had a romance i think with um the counterculture and with hippies and i listened to the beatles and pink floyd and all of that and and so could and so could feel you could feel something like you listen to magical mystery tour you listen to sergeant pepper it is just dripping with psychedelic energy right it's like a dolly painting of a clock it's just you can just tell you listen to it it just melts your face off with some kind of strange energy that i that having no experience of that psychedelic state at the time i could still feel that there was something really profound that they were trying to communicate to everyone um and and so yeah so in high school in in the seattle area and in just in the northwest in general everyone knew about these things but then i heard also well you have to be careful because there are lookalikes and they look just like the other ones that you want but they'll kill you they'll destroy your liver and so at that point and and so at that point, um, I got really curious about that. And I decided, okay, I'd better go to a bookstore. I better get a book so I can learn the differences between these mushrooms. And for whatever reason, the book that I got was a, like thicker than a Bible. And that book is Mushrooms Demystified. And if you're on YouTube, if you're on the YouTubes, you can see my copy here. <laughs> that I got when I was like a junior in high school. It's uh, how many page? It's nine hundred some odd pages, mostly black and white. And there's only a scant number of pages in here that cover psilocybin mushrooms, and it only covers maybe five species. But in the beginning here, there's a great little paragraph or a great little page where he, the title of it is, "Hey man, do any psilocybin mushrooms grow around here?" And he has some really great stuff to say about the, the irony of the attitude of people that are generally hunting for these organisms and how they're looking for people that are you know, purportedly looking to expand their consciousness or reach higher levels of consciousness. All they want to do is take a shortcut and they don't really want to find, like, understand these organisms deeply. They just want the shortcut. And, and that really resonated with me. So thank God I got this particular book. And he has a poem in here written in the 60s. And I'm going to read that now. It's from Marge Piercy. Okay. We grew up in Disneyland with ads for friends and believed we could be made new by taking a pill. 
we wanted instant revolution where all we had to add was a little smoke. But there is no tribe who dance and then sit down and wait for the crops to harvest themselves and supper to roll over before the pot. And so, so that really resonated with me. And I think that that really aligns with a lot of what we've been talking about on the invisible path, that what you get out is proportional to what you put in when it comes to your understanding of things and how you're able to respond to situations um, and how you're able to appreciate things like this awesome chaga tea that I'm drinking and thinking about knowing, okay, there's, this is harvested in Siberia. There's tigers here, right? So, so what this book, so what I got really from this book was, well, I better learn as many species as I can. I better learn as many different genuses of mushrooms as I can. I better understand this as well as possible, because if you don't, you can die. And that was, and that wasn't just a silly warning. Like I found many times clusters of um, a species called uh, Psilocybes uh, stuncii, and they're called blue ringers uh, by the kids up in Washington. And uh, the kids, you know, they'd want to fill brown paper bags with these things, but growing right next to them, like literally caps touching caps would sometimes be Gallerina autumnalis. And if you're colorblind, they looked exactly the same. I mean, exactly the same. And, and so that's a real problem. And there were certainly cases, you know, in uh, historically where, you know, where young people would eat the wrong thing and then they would be afraid to go to the hospital because they had, you know, broken the law, right. By pursuing these, these uh, mushrooms. And so they're afraid to go to the hospital <laughs> and then they die of liver failure, right? Like this is tragic. Yeah. So, so anyways, um, I would see that a lot. And it's like, well, okay, you better, you better actually be careful. Um, so I spend a lot of time hunting for these things, but again, too scared to really do more than just dabble with them essentially. Right. Like, well, I'll taste it. But, but I had read enough by that time to have a real, um, have a real like respect, like an awful respect, a terrible respect for their potential. Um, I had read, I had read the, the accounts by Aldous Huxley um and and gordon wasson and and timothy leary and knew enough to be somewhat somewhat terrified or at least have a deep respect um but have you read have you read doors of perception mm -mm. so this is great i mean aldous huxley he was like a you know he was a he was a well-respected he still is but i mean he was a highly respected uh, you know, British author, and um, and he, you know, he famously wrote *Brave New World*, um, and came into contact with uh, mescaline, um, you know, well before the counterculture. This was in uh, maybe late fifties, but probably early sixties. I'm not sure when he first came in contact. It could have been late fifties, but he talks in there about. Um, this is this is so brilliant. He, he talks about how 
he's having this experience with mescaline and how he finally understands some of this mystical Zen poetry that he's read and how there's this one poem where, you know, some, a student asks the master, what is the Dharma body of Buddha? And the master says something like, uh, it's the hedge at the end of the row. And so Huxley, he's outside in the garden and he's looking at all of these plants and my God, he sees it, right? He sees that whatever he's gazing at like just exudes this profound significance that he could never access before. And maybe he could access it afterwards because of that, those experiences. Um, But it's interesting how, the West went through this journey of industrialization and we agriculture and then industrialization, all of that. And we lost, we lost this contact with these higher or more mystical states. And, and then I I think it was Ram Dass talks about how, uh, how it make, it just makes sense that God had to come to modern humans in the form of a drug, in the form of a material substance, because we're such a mechanistic and materialistic society. And there's some kind of, there's just something beautiful about that, about that observation. Um, You know, generally it's only, these kind of states I think are only generally tolerated in our society we only tolerate like artists and madmen to access these states or to be, to be essentially mystics. Right. And for the rest of us, it's something that you should, you know, you should ignore. You've got better things to do. You've got to pay, you've got to pay down your debts for Christ's sake. You know, you've got to, you've got to check in with the company. You got to badge in. You got to shop on Amazon, right? Um, and so, so I think, you know, we're, I think it is such an interesting space to talk about and, and not necessarily the, the, whole, the whole psychedelic thing. People tend to categorize that or compartmentalize that, but it really, what it is, it's essentially a doorway or an access point that is reliable and repeatable for people like us in the Western world who have been so thoroughly deconditioned from anything subtle, profound, mystical, or spiritual in a way. And so because we've lost so many sensitivities uh, and because we have so much, you know, we're just oversensitized because of the phone and everything. And we're deadened by that. And so it's almost like we do need a sledgehammer of some kind like this. You, it's like maybe for some people sitting on the mat and meditating for years is not reliable enough, not a reliable enough way for them to get there because they're too neurotic to just sit still, right? Like, I, I don't think I can do that. I have too much to do. You got the kids. And 
the wife and the job and the side hustle and all this stuff going on. And so for, and, and so I'm not, I'm probably just not good enough or wired well enough, or I'm not going to give myself the chance to consistently dedicate time to meditating and getting there in on the natch, as they say. Right. Um, but I've, you know, I've, I've made contact with spaces you know, mostly just back in, in college that still inform me to this day. Um, that is, that's a stunning thing. And that's what many people report. Um, thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think there's an awful lot to explore within this and how we, how we kind of put those pieces together is going to be really interesting because I do think this topic has a lot of depth to it. I think since you kind of ended in this about our experiences in a in a detailed way and I know I haven't shared any of this on the podcast so it's it's new ground which is which is unique after three years um, you know I didn't do I didn't get involved in any drugs at all until I was 30 plus years old um, which is a which is a pretty interesting flip of life experience. Um, and I have, a, we just have really, we have really different perspectives on this. And I think, I think one of the challenges that we're going to have in this, in this thing is in this podcast is the description of what goes on within your brain is something that's relatively hard to, to articulately share. Um, but I do think I really want to get into this idea of, uh, of meditation and it's something we've touched on in the past. And I think I, I've recently put out a podcast just on the misidentification of, of meditation. And in case you don't listen to both feeds, um, let me just give a brief synopsis of that, which is essentially what people think of as meditation today is thinking with your eyes closed. And what meditation is, is an experience that begins when you completely dissolve any attachment to your physical being. And those two things are so marketably different that it's, it is there are almost no people on the planet actually meditating. Almost everyone teaching meditation is teaching people how to think with their eyes closed. And what kind of ended my uh, experience with psychedelics, with mushrooms, with whatever, was meditation. Um, I realized that, so, so my like historical mushroom experience, again, nothing before I was 30, when I was 35-ish, probably, I did a pretty good chunk of time, a year, a year and a half 
of microdosing mushrooms. And I did pretty deep dives during that time. And I had some interesting experiences, uh, very interpersonal experiences, but they don't hold a candle to the experience I have in meditation. Like it's, it is like, there's a limiting factor. There's a limiting factor in my experience with psychedelics, which is that I can't actually grasp the thing. Uh, the thing is something that I can see, but I can't embody it. Where, whereas with meditation, the only way that it is experienced is by fully embodying the thing. Um, and the thing for me in meditation is a complete dissolvement of the physical body and a complete experience of oneness with everything around you. So that means that you experience your experience in meditation for me, my experience in meditation for me, I am the exact same thing as my house, as my planet, as my universe. Um, and there's only one experience happening. Now that is something that is really hard to communicate through words, but that is the most articulate way I've come up with so far. We talked a, we talked a, a, a year ago, probably, about this, like, is, enlighten, is the path of enlightenment worth it? And like the amount of work it takes to get down that path. And you said, you said something beautiful and eloquent, and I, it just stuck with me. And it's, a, it's an idea that I have been just continuously kicking around uh, since, since you said it. And I think where you kind of started on this mushroom psychedelic talk was the shortcut, right? The shortcut was in the book. And, and I think that was a biological reference in many ways, right? It was like, learn, learn the biology of this, of this organism you are wanting to consume, have like an intimate experience with the organism itself. But I also think that right now, psychedelics are maybe at the height of their popularity in like normalized society. So the 60s, there was that fringe group, right? That got very into psychedelics. But now you can't go anywhere without someone having a conversation about ayahuasca within 35 feet of you. And when I hear those conversations, in a lot of ways, they make me sad because most people, most people's conversation about ayahuasca goes something to the effect of this. Oh, I went on this special retreat in Costa Rica at this nightclub slash ayahuasca retreat center. And now I came back and everything's different and I'm enlightened. And I just don't think that's how it works. Yeah. <laughs> but you, but, but the way you phrased, the way you phrased it, I think was important, which was Meditation isn't consistent enough, I think, is how, how you described it. So I want to dig in kind of on both sides of that perspective of like the consistency of result, maybe, or the ease of result, whatever it is. So, yeah, so you can, you can sit for an hour 
every day for a month uh, and, you know, meditate in air quotes, whatever, you can do your damnedest. And people are going to have radically different uh, results with that. Um, but you can, you can give a bunch of people a hefty dose of mushrooms if it is a large enough dose they're all going to have some they're all going to have a profound experience it might be profoundly terrifying it might be uh blissful um but this is something actually that was studied uh in the 60s um, by a graduate student um who was at the i think it was through mit but he was consulting with uh, Dr. Uh, you know, Timothy Leary, before he was fully, uh, you know, disgraced before he became a holy man, it was fully kicked out of Harvard and all of that. And it was, uh, the good Friday experiment. And they gave half the participants psilocybin and the other half, they gave them niacin. And the niacin was a, a pretty smart placebo because it would give you some kind of physiological effect. You would feel this flushing effect with blood coming to the surface of your skin. And so, uh, you know, in Tim's description of it, uh, first of all, he felt bummed because he got all of the, uh, there was, you know, instructors there, uh, called them babysitters, whatever, that were part, taking part in this as well. And they were also given, they were also part of the experiment. They were either given a placebo or psilocybin. And he knew, you know, 15 minutes in, he's like, oh, shucks, I didn't get it. And then he felt pretty bored for the rest of the time because he's, but, you know, he was helping people as well. But there are half the, half the participants are just sitting there like, meh, whatever. And the other half are just like walking around this room, which was, it was, uh, the experiment was held in a church. And they're walking around, looking at the windows, just saying, my God, everything is so beautiful. And so you clearly knew who was having which experience. Um, but it's interesting how today, you know, we, we talked about this before about how today psychedelics are wrapped up completely in their Western, in Western values. So you're looking at microdosing. How can this help my productivity for my, my startup or the corporation I work for? Right. Uh, or you're looking at, which is fine. That's totally fine. Or it's, well, how can I heal my childhood trauma? Uh, and, you know, that's another very Western way to look at this. Um, whereas how it was approached in the past, and I think how its true nature and its true utility is really about contacting some sort of mystical experience um and again words right like words are just they do not do any of this any of these states justice at all um yeah. but that is the ultimate kind of soul healing um positioning or or framing of this thing really is that it's when you get down to it what it's really for, it's not for diddling the dose and seeing what you can do to be more productive or try to, you know, heal whatever effed up things your parents did to you or whatever, or life did to you. It's about contacting something 
that is so otherworldly that it it may not have any real relation to your job, your family, your 401k, your, your car, any of these mundane things in life, your status, your clothes, your, your five-year plan, any of this stuff, right? It's, it's something that is so otherworldly that um, it certainly is not for everyone. We've talked about that before with, um, with how you have Dunbar's number. I, I think that's who it is, Dunbar. Um, a tribe is 150 people generally. And you've only got one shaman in a tribe, or maybe two. Maybe you have the shaman and then their apprentice. So it certainly isn't for everyone. Um, but it, it's about something that is unlanguageable. And that's what I'm hearing from you too, right? When, when you talk about what meditation actually is, it's about something that you simply cannot put into English. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Which does make it makes it really English is a really important thing too because English is such a like external language. The words that we, the words that we have available to us in the English language are very external, and that adds a element of difficulty to describing things that go on within us that we we can't even really sparse out from from the actual language which we have been born into speaking but I, you know the the shamanistic component of this is is a really interesting it's a really interesting idea because the, the shaman in a in a traditional society is, is like the most important figure in that they are there. They're like the judge, the jury, the spiritual leader. Like they essentially fill all of the governmental roles. And they're also deeply experienced in the chemicals with which they are giving you, right? Like there's a real difference in someone who, who has grown up being a, a shaman's apprentice and from 12 to 15 years old been working with this one plant chemical, uh, teaching you the experience of what this plant chemical will be, or the person who's done mushrooms once and decided it's the greatest thing ever and they come over to your house with a bag of mushrooms and they're like, let me tell you how to do these things. Here's the perfect dose for you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the fact that we don't have anyone actually guiding us really does make that, make that a reality. And I know someone is listening right now saying, well, at my ayahuasca ceremony, I did have someone guiding me. And I would say, yeah, but that person is accepting money to guide you they probably aren't the purest form of guidance that is available on this planet. Uh, you know, just to play devil's advocate there, it's like, well, yeah, maybe it doesn't even matter. I mean, the most profound experience I had was um, that I've ever had with, with psilocybin was within college. And it was with something that someone grow with someone grew and it was dried out and, 
made into a tea and money exchanged hands and the whole thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter because it still delivered something so incredibly profound, but I, I, totally agree with what you're saying that we don't have, we've lost that framework. We've lost that container in the modern world. Um, and yeah, t- I, every time I'm just going to have to like give Terrence McKenna credit for some of these ideas, any idea that's his, because he, he really thought about this so profoundly. He, he mentioned many in many talks about how y- there are people that can go through their entire lives with never contacting the psychedelic state. And you could also call that with never, you could also say without ever contacting a mystical state, regardless of how you come into contact with that, let's just say. And yet it's something that is so like innately part of humanity's potential capacities. And for someone who's had contact with these types of mystical states, um, and, and to view someone who hasn't, it's almost like the way to think about that is someone who has gone through their entire life and not ever had contact with sexuality to any degree. It is just as a profound component of the human experience, and yet it is hidden from nearly everybody. Um, and when it where it's not hidden it's essentially trivialized. I mean, you look at, I remember re, I don't know why I was so into just reading about it, about, you know, I read Doors of Perception. I read Gordon Lawson's accounts. He was, um, he was the person who, he was the first Westerner to participate in a shamanic ritual in the mountains of Mexico, um, ingesting, um, psilocybin mushrooms with a, a curandero down there. And his descriptions are of his experience are just so profound. And I remember reading that um, and contrasting that with what popular culture had told me about psychedelics and was just thinking like, my God, like the, the disservice done to everybody by by popular culture describing this and uh you know denigrating it it was just so it was just so enormous really i mean i understand why it was done you know because it really came about during the counterculture and it was too much it was just too much to to lay these insanely powerful agents on top of everything else um and and Gordon Wasson, he was a, a VP of um, public relations, I think it was, at like J.P. Morgan or some bank like that. Lived in Connecticut, um, a well-to-do, serious scholar. And he put together a team of people to go to Mexico, including a, a mycologist um, and a photographer. And he brought his, his wife, which uh, she had the there's so many interesting connections there uh, because she ha- she was uh, uh, from Russia. She had a lot of Russian culture. And this is where they first sort of recognize these differences between Eastern European culture and Western European culture when it came to, to mushrooms and how Western cultures just feared mushrooms and Eastern European cultures loved them for culinary reasons. 
but but anyways later he would so he somehow he got funding through some nonprofit to to fund these expeditions he went down to mexico multiple times um, and later it was discovered he did not know this that uh the funding um and the group that this was all hit this was all just like kind of a shell nonprofit or corporation that helped with the funding and it was actually uh the cia's mk ultra that was funding his work so um the deep state is everywhere in, in everything it's it would seem um but that didn't matter because what he was able to bring back was a a a christian right I mean, these people, the shaman would pray to Jesus and to Mary as she is uh, trying to heal her patient uh, while in this, you know, peak shamanic state. And in his, he wrote a, an article that went into um, a Time Life magazine. Uh, yeah, Life magazine in 1957, May 13th, 1957 is the issue. Uh, it's very expensive. Um, you're going to pay 500 bucks to get a copy of that today. Um, but anyways, great descriptions in there about his experience. And he makes connections in there about between uh, the this mushroom ceremony, this sacred ritual, and the Eucharist right? The, the Catholic church and the Eucharist and the body of Christ. And well, okay, you're going to, you're going to sip your wine and you're going to eat this cracker and you'll feel nothing. Well, they were also ingesting essentially God's flesh. That's really in some sense how they're viewing this, but it delivered, it delivered for sure. And then, I mean, the shaman, she's believing that she's praying to and she's speaking with Jesus and, and Mary. And what a strange thing then for this article, for, for Gordon Wasson to put all of this together, to synthesize this, really have a profound understanding of it, and then just drop this on the world um, in this article. And that was another one of those watershed moments that helped kick off that counterculture revolution and that attempt at western people you know to gain some kind of access to the ineffable to to have a shot maybe at at seeing that that hedge at the bottom of the garden row is the dharma body of buddha um and in the same way you know huxley talks about looking at his his corduroy pants he's looking down at his corduroy pants and how they're just like a magnificent, you know, sculpture. They're just something so profound. Uh, all of the the ridges and the folds in them, and how anything that he gazed at was just imbued with some sort of some sort of profound significance that he didn't have access to in any other way. And he was an incredible author and very deep thinker. So, so there's something really powerful there that you know first we abused sort of as we tried to figure out what the hell it was in the 60s then we outlawed it then we cartoonified it and said well it's just a you know it's a silly thing you might come into contact with in college and then you can forget about it and now we're trying to 
make it into something productive. <laughs> so, hmm. so that's where we're at. That's fine. It is what it is. <laughs> like I said, I'm, I'm a reluctant person. I think it's fascinating to think about. I'm terrified to ever try to approximate that type of dosage or that experience that I had in college. I think it's very forgiving with people when they're young and when you don't know anything. You might not be so forgiving when you're older. I don't know. Hmm. So, so I think that's, that is interesting. That's probably, there's probably something true to that. I will say I don't understand. And you, you, you said you fully understood why, why drugs are illegal. I, and I will say, I, I don't understand mushrooms is like such a wonderful example because uh, you could have, you could have a mushroom garden in your yard. One, one little section of mushroom could be mushrooms that are, that are consumable and that go in salads. One little section is mushrooms that if you consume any of them, you will die. And then one little section of mushrooms could be, if you consume these, you, you might see the world differently. Well, it seems like if, if you were going to make one of those three sections of mushrooms illegal to grow, it does seem like the one that would kill you would be the one that people would be most concerned about. So I find it fascinating that that is not the case. But I also yeah. think... Yeah, just, just really quick on that. I, I just mean, I, I, it makes sense to me. I think we talked about this before. It makes sense like why the Nixon administration just banned all of this stuff in one fell swoop. They just tried to ban all of it because they were so terrified by the counterculture at the time. And then what they feel, what they sort of unleashed as well. Like they really helped sort of get these chemicals out there in a way. And then they had to reel that back. They were too freaked out by all of the, the protests and the domestic terrorism that was happening and all of that uh, by like the, was it the weather underground? all that kind of stuff happening. There are all sorts of crazy things happening in the late sixties, early seventies. So anyways, that's the segue to just clarify that. Yeah. <laughs> so I could see, so I could see part of the problem as this group of people who popularized, you know, the, the this Harvard educated really group of people who popularized psychedelics I think if I review these from a a very fair perspective, the, the way they brought them to the West was not with a lot of intention or protectiveness. They were pretty loosey-goosey with the like, hey, let's go on a ride and see what happens. And I think, you know, it's... It's easy to say, oh, well, Ted Kaczynski's brain was ruined, but I don't know. I have no idea if, if being a part of the Harvard studies with Ted Kaczynski made him decide to blow things up. He may have blown things up no matter what, but I do think that there is, you know, we, we do think of these people like Ram Dass as these like brilliant thought leaders. And the and and he he's an interesting side or step. I think you know. Let me finish this thought, and then I'll go. I'll bounce back to Ram Dass' end of life really quick. But you know, there's this group of people who popularize psychedelics, 
and they did so I think with not a lot of like awareness of the potentiality of doing what doing so could do and that is probably part of the path of why things became illegal and I think had had it been done with more intention had it been done more shamanistically the likelihood is that the experience the west has with with psychedelics is remarkably different um and just like as a just as a, a brief throwback to the idea that it doesn't matter if you have guidance or not because your experience could be profound right but it is a it is a, a false equivalency because you don't know what the experience would have been like with guidance. So we can't say it was just as profound, right? We can say I had a really profound experience, but there's no way to ever know how the experiences would have compared because we can't have both experiences at once. But 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 the people who have grown up with this experience as part of their culture have a very different relationship to these chemicals than, than we do. I think there's no doubt about the fact that the people who've grown up with this as part of their culture and who had some type of shamanistic guidance into the experience have a very different relationship with, with what goes on. Um, so to wrap up this Ram Das comment, one of the things you said earlier was something along the lines of Ram Das talking about how he wanted, he wanted this, this freedom from uh, from finances, in a way. Do you remember? I don't remember the exact quote. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Continue though. So, so one of the things that's always stuck with me about Ram Das is that at the end of his life, he spoke very openly about the regrets he had for not having money, for not being able to financially take care of himself and for being dependent upon his community to support his end of life care. And I don't know why that has stuck with me, but it like it is the thing that defines Ram Das to me is that it feels very much like at the end of this journey where he taught all these people and man, our culture, Gen X, like Ram Das is the Buddha. Like my group of people, if they're going to talk about spirituality, it will be in the first five sentences that Ram Das has brought up. And I just think of this guy who lived this, this quote unquote spiritual existence at the end, regretting everything. And that is profoundly sad to me. What do you do? I mean, there's, it's, uh, <laughs> there's, man, that, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's going to be an overlap between, between the sacred and the profane in a way. And so you just think that he, he did, he did wrong by his community essentially because they had to, they had to that... help him. He thinks that. I don't think okay. it at all. I okay. have no idea his experience, but he spoke openly about being embarrassed and sad about the fact that that was his reality. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I don't know. I guess I'd, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I have any like really uh, any profound thoughts about that. I mean, it's uh, shoot <laughs> death. I, I, I have know. a lot. Like, I have a lot. All I can, of all I can think about that. is like the time that I watched a cat being put down because it, it was at the end of her life, and it was uh, it was just sort of a, a clumsy. It was a clumsy thing in a way, right? Like there's not. Sometimes that's just how it is. Things are messy and ugly and, and clumsy sometimes. And um, that's why people joke about how like, well, when I get to the end, just roll me, just take my wheelchair and just roll me off into the Grand Canyon or something. I mean, I don't know. I see it as that, that tension between the, the sacred and the everyday and and a, rom, a great, my favorite Ram Dass quote, which is that even God has to take out the trash. Um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I guess uh, the moments that stick with me from his life are writings about earlier times. Um, when he, you know, when he was like still high on mushrooms in the very early days before he was Ram Dass and he, shoveled the snow out of the driveway of his parents house and at like whatever two in the morning or something and they were like what what are you doing and he's like uh, you know i'm just free and happy and i'm shoveling your driveway for you and they just thought he was a nut so so i don't know it's a different i guess it's a different moment different moments stick in my head from for me for him um yeah this touches back to like what what we talked about previously about taking care of your elders. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's certainly, I mean, just like with everything you get out of it, really what you put into it. And it, it, I mean, I, and I went in, I, I think I was a, a strain, a rare person going into it because I had read all of, leary stuff about set and setting and how important that was um and but i don't know what does it do you know i, I could get very cynical about the whole the whole experience as well because it, it is interesting about how it runs through your hands like water like i'm sure when you come out of a, a very deep meditation you know, eventually maybe you, maybe some words will come into your head to describe the experience. Well, that's the first sign that it's just running away from you and bleeding away. And you lose it at that point. Once you start to English it at all, that means you, you're coming down. You're trying to capture it in a way by wrapping it and trapping it in language. And that's the next step, right? Like you're in this profound state. It's unenglishable. It's uncommunicatable to anyone else. And then you try to describe it. You try to capture it. That means you've lost it, right? <laughs> At least that's how I see it. I don't know. What, what, what are your thoughts? 
I think it's, I think that is, that is a, a very well articulated description of what I, I, how I view the difference between meditation and psychedelics in that when you come out of a deep meditation, you are in a place that is meditative and you can stay in that place for days, for weeks, for months, for years. Whereas with psychedelics, when the experience is over, you may have seen things, you may have felt things, but I don't think you embodied those things. I think there's a, I think there's a very distinct difference. And that is only my personal experience, right? I get anyone's experience. I, I can only attest to what I have experienced in my life, but I do think that sensation of running away of the water, of the water slipping through your hands and you trying to hold it as like deeply as you can is, is my experience with psychedelics. Um, I can think of times, like there used to be a joke in the float tank um, where like you had to do two things. If you had the thought that would like come through you, you either had to just be okay with never remembering it again or stop, get out and like write it all down because you weren't going to get through an experience like that and still have whatever it was. And, you know, people would talk about it all the time, like maybe I bring in a waterproof notepad and this and that, or a waterproof recorder and this and that. And it's just like, yeah, but you're already done also. Like the moment you start creating whatever it was, you're not getting back into that space again either. So I actually, it's, it's a really fascinating thing. And I feel like, um, I feel bad in an interesting way. You know, <laughs> you, you were talking about how someone who's experienced psychedelics is trying to have a conversation with them about someone who has it. And it's like an impossibility, right? There's just not enough shared information to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I feel the same way about almost everyone on the planet and meditation. And, and, and when people are, when people are having the conversation with me about the equivalency of psychedelics and meditation, I think it's because the meditation they've experienced isn't really meditation and that's not their fault. I think they've been taught that meditation is something completely different than what it actually is. But there's like a, there's like a disconnect of ideas that just don't translate. But I do think that meditate, the experience that meditation offers <laughs> is so vastly different that it, it is, um, it's, it is almost like having that same conversation. And I know that can't make any sense, but that is what it feels like to me. It feels like in that same way where you're like, yeah, it's, it's cool. Like psychedelics are cool. But if you give me 30 days and an hour every day, like you said, hey, if someone mm -hmm. gave you 30 days and an hour every day, I will change your life in a way that like you won't even, you, you can't possibly imagine. 
<laughs> I love that. Does well, that make any sense? I've only got an hour every day for Netflix, not for meditation. So <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's right? fair. Terrible. I think um, that is true. Yeah. But I think that is yeah. true. Like that's people right. are always like, hey, do you have a streaming service? And I'm like, I think I have a streaming service. Like I'm pretty sure I pay for a streaming service, but I don't know enough to like tell you I for sure have a streaming service because I might use it once a year. And like there there is like a reality of like there's only so much time in every day. Yeah. That's right. This is incredible. I I love this. Um <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where to where to go with it i what's funny like what uh like the the humorous thing that comes to comes to mind now is like two people arguing over which is better psych psychedelics or meditation which is more yeah. profound it's so funny it's um yeah I, the, so i think there's this great both yeah both psychedelics and meditation are, are likely at the height of their physical popularity, right? And again, when I say the word meditation, just know that I am referring to what people are doing, which is sitting, thinking with their eyes closed. But I think both of those things, I do think if we like took a, a populist poll, there are more people involved in each of those things than there has been at any time on the planet. And um, that is partly because the population is bigger than it's ever been, right? Like there's, there's reasons for that. But I also think both of those things are having, are having some type of a resurgence and that, that psychedelics are having the resurgence tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousand times fold that, that meditation is having. So certainly people are yeah. drawn to the psychedelic aspect. Well, it's getting so much research as well, right? It's getting so much, so much attention with research, um, and and they're finding these, you know, fairly persistent, lasting changes in people that have a profound experience. And what what I think is what I think is interesting is that it's people are pointing to the the psychedelic as the, the thing that is doing the healing or the changing. But I don't think it is. I think what it is, is that it's the religious experience that that molecule is permitting or allowing or occasioning to, to happen. That's really what it is. Um, you, can, you can diddle the dose all you want. And that's not going to do it. But if you are brave enough or stupid enough to um, to have a sufficient dose and have the right set and setting, you know, the physical setting, the mental state, the intention, all of that, and you have that religious experience, whatever whatever you want to call that, right? That that does something to people. That that creates a profound change. And some of those studies, you know, at John Hopkins, it's maybe the change is they have less of a fear of death as they grapple with their stage four cancer, or maybe it's, it allows them to see the harm they're doing to themselves. And so then they can quit, you know, their addictive relationship with alcohol or cigarettes or, or what have you. Um, 
it is really that religious experience that that is the key to the thing and it seems like for neurotic uh phone addicted modern people you know taking a pill is the most consistent way to get there and the most efficient way to get there and that's that doesn't mean i'm advocating for it right i don't really mm. i don't care either way what people do it's uh i guess these are just my my impressions of what's happening right now with with that space yeah yeah okay so we're but, up over an hour but, but you're sleeping on the floor and you don't have a streaming service so you're different than like 99.9 percent .9 of americans so i have a streaming service i just don't know which one yeah see exactly <laughs> so you don't ever watch it so <laughs> right okay yeah we're there we've gone over if anyone's hung so, on this so, long that's awesome so we've gone over and uh, and like usual we've only scratched the surface of of a potential topic um what do you think about starting next episode with shared experiences so just giving some form of description to the profoundness of a historical psychedelic experience oh sure let's do that that'll be awesome <laughs> yeah yeah let's do that you can say no <laughs> oh totally no let's let's do that because it it can it continues on um and the yeah the whole progression and maybe eventually we'll get to uh to where i find myself up up on the mountain um and randomly finding uh this new species and then what's happened yeah. since then i guess well, we have to, we like, there's nothing, there's nothing that I've ever wanted you to tell me more than the, than the experience of how you actually found, like I, I, the details of how you found this thing um, are definitely, <laughs> yeah, they're a thing that I, that I want to hear about. So we have to get to that. We, we can't not. Oh, we will. We will. That's the crazy, <laughs> that's the craziest thing. Because it's so darn rare. It is so, it's so hard to find up there, at least in my experience. That's probably because I'm not very good at finding these things. But uh, yeah, it's hard to find. So to, to come across it randomly, it was, uh, it was or accidentally, right? It's quite a thing. But yeah. Here we are. Merry, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Yeah. Happy New Year. All that <laughs> stuff. It's all coming up. Monica Happy Christmas, home. everybody. In yeah. five days. In five days. My God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Joel. I'm, I'm excited to kind of dig deeper into the stuff we just kind of laid out to get your full story on, on discovering a brand new species and to see where we, to see where we end up next on this path. And I love this push and pull with uh, meditation and all of that this is great this is great <laughs> and we're gonna have to do something we're gonna have to do something ridiculous with some 2022 predictions right we've talked about that we might have to do something there too <laughs> Ooh, are we gonna do that <laughs> just that to get great. we'd have we'd have to finish this other thing first but then because that could just be all 
that's getting back in the mud. That's getting back in the weeds of the mundane <laughs> chaos of, uh, of our culture and uh, what's happening. So, but that'll be fun too. We can, we can, uh, you know, we can do the yin and the yang of the, the subtle and the sacred <laughs> and, and the profound, and then back to just, you know, predictions of, of what chaos awaits us. <laughs> well, so I will just say, more than anything else, I want to do that episode because 2022, a year in preview is like, it's just like, it's like, it's there. It just, it, it has to be done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Joel. Thank you. Heck yeah. Enjoy the rest of your Friday. I know this won't be Friday when this comes out, but we recorded on the 17th, y'all. Hey, if you're listening on a Monday, make it your Friday. Get the feels. Oh yeah. And, and... Check out Joel's setup. He mentioned that he has a new studio. He didn't call it studio. I called it a recording space. But it's like, it's the thing that makes me jealous more than anything else. Look at that. Yeah. And and little primal cold action up there. Yeah, I got petroglyphs <laughs> in the background. You yeah. gotta, gotta plug the ball science products. Yeah. Primal cold, <laughs> Optimus <laughs> Red. Get them now. Make your 2022 yeah. awesome. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Five days. They'll, they'll arrive sometime around Christmas. Sure. We ship priority. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Hey, thanks, Patrick.